Predominantly produced in the Southern Cape in Mzanzi, hops grows best in loose and porous soil and this week we share a guide to get started. For any new livestock farmer, understanding your animal's health and safety is vital. And this week we meet Voyokazi Makapela, a director at AfriVet as part of a new One Health campaign focused on everything farmers should know about animal health. In our Agripreneur 101, we meet the founder of Think Green, addressing the well-being of your body, mind and soul with their cannabis-infused products and services. Our book of the week is Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. And our farmer top of the week comes from Annelie Steenkamp, founder of Breaking Ground Organics. This is Farmer's Inside Track, supported by Food for Mzansi. Inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs. Hey, I'm Zanzi and welcome to episode 126 of Farmers Inside Track. I'm your host, Dawn Numdu. Now let's get straight into it with that promised guide to starting a hops farm in South Africa. Nicole Ludolf chats to Kaya Maloney, urban agricultural entrepreneur and founder of AfriLeap. Thank you so much, Dawn. Kaya, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your business? I set up a hops greenhouse on top of Constitutional Hill and I farm various varieties of hops. I didn't know what I wanted to do until late 2017 after various jobs and various failed businesses. I've come from a construction engineering background. I saw an ad on TV. It was about Brooklyn Grange, a rooftop farm on top of dilapidated buildings. And I thought that's a brilliant idea. The only difference is they actually put soil using cranes and they put it on top of the roof and they grew with soil. And that's when I started, how can you innovate that? Because I was always thinking innovation. Obviously, greenhouses are already around, but through my searching and my going back and forth to like different craft brewers and asking them if they've heard of hops being grown hydroponically, all of them said no, they never heard of it. None of them had even tried it. And I decided to embark this idea of developing the world's first four-season hop house, knowing that hops only grow in George because of the climate in the Southern Cape. In terms of hop farming, what is the sort of average day length that a hop plant or crop requires? They require about fewer than 16 hours of sunlight because they are climbers. They do climb up a trellis hydroponically. Having a light is invaluable. So I have a sensor or timer system in my farm, which is on immediately after the sunset. When it gets dark at about 6.30, the lights come on immediately to supplement the lighting requirements that Joburg doesn't have. That So 16 hours as opposed to the 12 to 14 that we have here. You also mentioned that hobs normally have a 12-month growth cycle and that traditionally farmers would harvest maybe twice a year. So do you then harvest four times a year or how often do you actually harvest? The aim is to harvest four times a year. I started at twice a year. This is my second year. I've already done like two harvests. So I'm looking at three times a year. Probably next year, I'll be able to get the complete four times a year harvest because the yields are faster. The root or the rhizome is already used to the conditions of where it is. So acclimatizing as well is a very important thing for your hops. I also included features such as black curtains in my hop yard, and those assist in photoperiodism. Photoperiodism is very important for hops, and you have to get it absolutely right to the T if you want to achieve required grow length at a specific time when it's flowering season. 
I then close the curtains during the day and it turns the greenhouse absolutely black. So the plants recognize that when it's flowering time and they see actual sunlight, they decide to grow much quicker. Is there any other infrastructure specific to farming hubs hydroponically that an aspiring hub farmer needs to be aware of? If you have your tanks, one is a pulsator, one is obviously the nutrient filtration tank. Do you know maybe what the difference in cost would be in terms of your operation versus a traditional hop farming operation? With a traditional hop yard, those are like gold at the moment. They're owned by families down in the Southern Cape. I went there to visit. Essentially, the startup costs are always going to be the most expensive. But once you get your financial modeling and you get your market correct, and you get different aspects of doing things correctly, there is a break-even point. And then from there, you start becoming profitable because it is a high-value crop. If you do it four times a year, you are taking advantage of the space that you have relative to just harvesting once a year on traditional ground. It pays itself off after about year two, year three, maybe year four, depending on how slow you start and what equipment you have or don't have. You don't have to get seedlings every other day because from rhizome cutting can last about 25 years. The nutrients are also a consistent thing that you have to do. If you're going to be hiring people, that's also another maintenance cost. But they all get offset after a while. Like I said, it is a high-value crop. In order to break into the market with hub farming specifically, it really actually depends on the cultivar that you use. It really does depend on the cultivar because the various plant breeders' rights that are owned by various entities don't allow other people to grow cultivars that they don't have the license to or have paid the fee to use. It is difficult to start off with if you don't have adequate farming. So before you even venture into hop farming, you have to make sure they have access to be able to grow the whatever cultivars there are, some cultivars that don't have plant breeders' rights on them that are in the country. But if they're from another region of the country, there's a whole process specifically just growing that. You can't get it into the country. It'll stay in customs. And there's a whole process into getting into the country. And it might even take a from nine months to a year just to get clearance of that crop in the country. So there's a lot of things that go into deciding what crop to grow. And finally, do you have any tips or pieces of advice for aspiring hop farmers? If you're young and you're aspiring to grow hops hydroponically, first of all, kudos to you. Be comfortable with Google and research and learning every day, getting new pieces of information If you're doing it on a small scale, don't necessarily focus on the profits more than you looking for opportunities to scale, be that through partnerships, through financing, houses, through whatever. Use your small scale as a platform to show that you can actually grow this thing, but you're also learning from that small scale. I wouldn't suggest you start on a massive scale unless you obviously have a hop growing experience. Thirdly, I'll just say like, do it for love. If you're going to do it for profit, it's a long, long journey that way. With me, there was an alcohol ban in lockdown, so I couldn't even service my clients. I had to look for different clients. Looking at it as a profitable thing immediately is very short-sighted. And you should look at it as a long-term thing or as a, what I like to say, as a mixtape, as a sample CD that you're showing people that I can actually do this thing. And then after that, the opportunities will come to you and you'll be able to facilitate your idea for hop growing. Thanks, Nicole, and great having you, Kaya Maloney, urban agricultural entrepreneur and founder of AfriLeap. Now for that promised discussion for new farmers about understanding your animal's health and safety. 
and that's really vital for farmers in Mzanzi. Vuyokazi Makapela, a director at AfriVet, as part of a new One Health campaign, focused on everything farmers should know about animal health. Vuyo directly translated your name means great joy. And your hope is to bring great joy and hope into the lives of those you interact with, especially communal farmers. Tell us about this belief and what drew you to the sector. Where does your love for farming and Mzanzi's agricultural sector really come from? Yes, indeed, Don. Uh, my name means great joy. It wasn't just enough to give me that name, Buyokazi. My father, he had to top it up with Felicity, which is my second name. A Latin word uh, meaning a state of feeling great happiness. I really believe that both my name have literally crafted who I am. So when they say your name follows you and vice versa, it is actually true. I am a double dose of happiness anytime, any day. But coming back to your question, Don, I grew up in Mdanzane, which is a location or township in the Eastern Cape. And we later moved to the rural village of Kaiskamahuk, which is known as Kukobotobo in the Eastern Cape. And that's where my father was coming from. He was a businessman who at a certain point in his life had to sell cabbages. We as his children also had to assess to make ends meet. My father later had cattle as he was a headsman himself as a young boy. And my mother followed suit and he added pigs to the mix. He was very and still is very passionate about pigs. We call him the pigman as a nickname in the family. Something that probably you wouldn't know. Farming is a phenomenon that I wasn't quite attracted to as a young girl. I had dreams, I had aspirations, and it was not one of them. And I was always teased about this because I was teased. And, you know, my sibs say I am the sophisticated one. But you know what? You never know where life is going to take you. And actually, this has been my path all along. And I must say that my brother and my dad probably planted a seed back then that they didn't know that they were planting. I'm able to do what I'm doing with ease because that seed was planted back then. As they say, where your heart is, is where you make the most impact. And I think this is it for me. But moving forward, I think loving and respecting people, no matter their social status, is something that was instilled in me from a young age. And I therefore believe that my purpose in life is to make a difference in people's lives. After an encounter with me, one must be changed, be a new person or at least have hope or have a different perspective about life in general. And most importantly, what they can achieve. I really believe and strongly believe that life is about great opportunities and possibilities. It is those that rise confidently who will see these and grab them with both hands. So I challenge you, Don, and your listeners to dare to dream and dream big. If your dreams don't scare you, then they're not big enough. Coming back to our farmers, the most important people, as without them, we won't have food. They basically ensure food security, as we at AfriVet ensure food safety. Even more important, as you might know, our communal farmers hold almost 50% of the animals in our country, and the other 50% is in the hands of our commercial farmers. It is thus imperative to capacitate our communal farmers, not only on how to handle their assets, but on how to identify diseases, as early identification of diseases is quite critical. They need to know how to use the correct dosages according to weight, and this knowledge is power to them. And lastly, maybe just to get them into the mainstream of the economy. 
What you're sharing is absolutely amazing. Just sharing a bit about, you know, how you grew up and the seed that your brother and father planted to sort of set your path in motion for where you're going to eventually end up and where you're playing now at the moment in this space. It's absolutely amazing to hear. Yeah, I think you mentioned also in the article published on Food from Zanzi as part of this campaign about, you know, yourself is the fact that the principles of Ubuntu were really planted, you know, in your growing up years and your experience growing up in the village. And this is obviously something that you still practice and embrace today. How important is this specifically when it comes to the agricultural sector? It is very important, Dawn. I must say, growing up, I was a boy that my dad wished to have as he had two girls, which is my sister and I, and I happened to be the younger one. Before my two brothers came, obviously, I was really exposed to business values and farming and got to be a part of a village where the principles of Ubuntu were truly practiced and embraced. I couldn't be more grateful to my dad for actually taking us back into that environment. These were really practiced in the neighborhood. And as a young girl who was shipped off to KZN at an early age of 13, we used to literally go back home over school holidays and there was no school holidays for us, believe me. And we used to work in the family businesses where we were not to take a cold drink from the fridge because it would eat at profits. So my dad would literally give us his own money to buy whatever it is we wanted to get in the shop. This then grew to the agricultural side of things where we wouldn't dare just slaughter a cow or pig, but we had to buy just like everybody else. And I think the most important thing or amazing thing that he did was introduce us to basic skills or principles of accounting, which we literally take for granted these days. And that is cash receipts, your cash payments, journal entries, and banking. It is very important to introduce these skills or principles to our children at a very young age because every aspect of our lives involves dealing with money. But what mostly touched me, which is something I watched with pride, and that was my dad making sure that his relatives had employment and were able to put food on the table. And so are the villages where he grew up. This was his belief that I rise, I take my fellow brothers and sisters with me. It wasn't just about him. It was never about him. He really made a huge impact in our village. And as a result, people speak of him to date. But for me, if I can emulate what he did and do even better in terms of societal impact, I would have lived my life on purpose. Absolutely amazing, Voyo. And I'm so glad to be able to share this with you and share a bit of your story and have you part of this campaign that we're doing on Farmers Inside Track to share your knowledge and experience with all of our farmers listening. Now, let's talk about the campaign, the One Health campaign. What does it mean to you and what can farmers listen to over the next few months? It's going to be quite exciting things to listen to. But basically, one would ask what One Health is because it's not everybody that understands the concept. But simply put, it is an interconnection between humans, animals and the environmental health. It's a concept that actually came into existence in 2004 and as a collaborative approach to address shared health threats, such as zoonotic diseases that are passed from animals, then humans, and then the environment. And so the cycle continues. But we as Afribed really believe that educating our people about these zoonotic diseases and the threat they pose not only to their lives, but to food safety and security in our land 
So one would ask what zoonotic diseases are or what it is, basically. And it is infectious diseases that are transmitted from animals to humans and vice versa. This is so important to me, Dawn, and it means a lot to me because so many diseases that are transmitted to humans can actually be prevented, but our people do not have the knowledge. And this is very dangerous. Our role, therefore, is to create awareness, educate, and help prevent the transmission of these these zoonotic diseases. Not long ago, for example, the World Organization for Animal Health, which is the OIE, reported that about 60% of existing human infectious diseases are zoonotic. And at least about 75% of emerging infectious diseases on humans have an animal origin. And I'm sure most of us have really experienced that in the past two years, having experienced COVID and its origins. I'm told that there's five new human diseases that emerge every year. And three out of these five are of animal origin. What does this really say? And actually, before I even go there, there's about 80% of agents with potential bioterrorist use which are zoonotic pathogens. What does this say to me and to the rest of your listeners or us as a community or the world? It says there's a clear message that medical and veterinary professions must work together. That's a very vital point. And that actually brings me to my next question around the fact that you believe that the private and public sector should be working together with South African farmers to address the challenges that they face in the communities and as a country as a whole. Can you share this vision for us and how we can actually move forward to protect not only animal health, but the health of humans and everyone collectively strengthening ourselves to be able to build the agricultural sector, but also just live happily and healthy? You know, I am truly convinced, John, that if pulled together as the private public sector, together with our farmers, we can address most of the challenges that face our communities and the country as a whole. Our approach to public and private partnership is focused on One Health, as I have mentioned before. But for instance, there are common health threats that affect both humans and animals, like rabies, your neurocystosecosis, your brucellosis, etc. And if we as public and private sector work together, we can really achieve better results. But we at AfriVet, we are very intentional about educating our farmers about these diseases We have developed training material in different local languages. We have apps that are accessible through smartphones that can help guide our communal farmers and community in early disease identification and report. With the assistance of our community animal health workers, which we've employed on the ground, our animal health technicians, as well as our vets. And we do have programs that we've actually embarked on and that are running on the ground in different communities, more specifically at deep tank level. We believe that this is where our farmers gather. This is where we can actually educate them about the number of things that affect them and their animals. What we're actually doing right now, we are actually reaching the broader community, not only our farmers at deep tank level, but the broader community in our society. Just to speak to this and how we have sort of like intervened, there's obviously quite a number of interventions that we've put in place as an organization, but in 2019, we donated a double cab bikey and a trailer to the East Cape Department of Vet Services just to help them with the rabies awareness campaigns and vaccinations. And this to me speaks to how we should work together 
We need to be able to identify a gap, close it, and not be bystanders or even spectators. We save lives. This is something that the private sector, instead of always having something to say or just look at things that happen around us, we act. Basically putting our mouths where our money is. And I'm challenging the private sector right now to do exactly what it is that we're doing within our communities. Human and animal welfare is very important for us. Thanks so much for joining us here on Farmers Inside Track. Vuyogazi Makapela, a director at Afribit. We now change gears from livestock farming to agri-innovation with our Agripreneur 101 segment. We meet the founder of Think Green, Razan Malio. They are busy addressing the well-being of your body, mind and soul with their cannabis-infused products and services. Roseanne, tell us about Think Green. Where did it all start? What sparked the idea? Before I got into the cannabis industry about four years ago, I was doing corporate conferences. In 2017, I worked on a a conference which was titled Medicinal Marijuana, the Misinformation and the Methods of Control. The reason I put together that type of conference at that time was because that was what was the topic of discussion, especially in Parliament. So in 2017, August, I put together that conference and invited the Department of Health to be part of that conference. I was told actually that it was the only public cannabis event that the department had ever agreed to attend. Then at the end of that two-day event, the representatives from the Department of Health asked the delegates at the conference, they must put together a cannabis industry body so that we can speak with one voice. I'm currently the deputy chairperson of the CDCSA. And while working with the different people within the CDCSA, I thought to myself, what can I do? Because most of the people were talking about the high THC products and things like that, and which is still like considered illegal. And it's still illegal according to the current laws to trade in. So I started thinking to myself, I learned quite a a lot of different things that we can do with cannabis. And one of the things that I came across was the cosmetics part of it. In the value chain, I learned that we could make cosmetics using part of the cannabis plant. We make a wide range of products from cold paste soaps to make turmeric soaps, coffee, oats, lavender, charcoal soap, carrot soap. And then we have massage oils, hair products, body creams, body scrubs. So we use all organic ingredients and we focus mainly on skin health because what we have learned is that 64% of what we put onto our bodies is actually absorbed into our skin. Our motivation is that at least let's put what is healthy onto our skins so that even if it's absorbed into our skins, it doesn't have any negative impact. Our main ingredient is hemp seed oil. Hemp seed oil is derived from a cold process method of extracting oil from the seeds, from the cannabis seeds. It's not derived from the bud or anything. It's derived from the hemp seed that is cold pressed. In the cases where we make like the balms, we use a bud that is a bit higher in THC to make the healing balms or the arthritis balms. Now, what are some of the challenges? Being a small business in itself is a challenge. If you're using your own savings to start a business, 
that's already a challenge. But our other challenges, apart from those initial challenges, are access to markets. Obviously, if we have to like search for events or activities that we can take part in for us to make ourselves available at those events. Already, our market has been saturated by imported cannabis products. If you go to Discam or Clicks, you find a lot of cannabis products that are imported. So we have very little local brands. And this is something that we are also pushing to say if we talk to more women about the uses of cannabis, it's not just recreational, but there are other things that we can do with cannabis in terms of cosmetics. So if we can increase our local brands, that would be a great thing. Lack of funding is another challenge that we are facing because as small businesses, we need that extra push to be able to compete with the international brands. And then finally, what keeps you motivated or inspired? The feedback that we get from our clients. Each time a client comes to you and tells you, this product is working for me, or this product really works, it has made a difference in my life or this is my skin was this and now look at it or my hair or this pain has reduced this is something that keeps me pushing keeps me getting up every morning to better my products that is the one thing that i can say is most rewarding i remember one time when we just started the turmeric body cream this lady was like i love this cream and it's like she had introduced it to her mom and her daughter but she said to me, is there a way that you can reduce the turmeric because it's staining my white clothes? We found a way of reducing the turmeric, but still maintaining the quality of, of the body cream itself. Thanks so much for joining us. The founder of Think Green, Roseanne Malio. Next up, and before we let you go, our book of the week is Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Here's the author now telling us more about this book. This goes to the theme of the book. If the theme of the book is there is more going on below the surface of consciousness than we tend to realize, what this says is, look, when you give someone a test, we think we like to pretend that what we're measuring is the kind of conscious contents of their brain. Mm -hmm. We're measuring something inherent about how smart they are. We're not. What we are measuring, we're measuring some of that, but we are also powerfully measuring their state of mind at the moment they take the test. And to me, that completely undermines the notion, this naive notion that many educators have, that you can reduce someone's intelligence to a score and test. You can't. Agriculture is not just about farming. It's about caring. And that's an ideal worth preserving. It's yummy. It's good for you. And the whole family loves it. It's grain-filled chickens, proudly South African and mouth-wateringly delicious. Discover a world of tasty goodness and visit Grain-Filled Chickens, the CODZA, or like our Facebook page for more. Grain-Filled Chickens, a proud member of VKB. VKB, for the love of the land. Remember, if you'd like to review a book or perhaps you have a book suggestion, feel free to email us on info at foodformzanzi.co.za. And before we let you go, our Farmer Tip of the Week comes from Annelie Steenkamp, founder of Breaking Ground Organics. She shares a few tips on growing seedlings. You'd need to obviously look at the basic things like the weather. You're not going to transplant on your hottest or your windiest day. You're going to be looking at your cooler days transplanting that is appropriate to each season. So you'll be purchasing your seedlings that are appropriate for that season, your winter, your summer crops. And when transplanting, 
it's very important that either you or your staff to handle the seedlings very carefully. Often they'll tend to grab the seedlings out of the trays and give them a good yank. And this often snaps them or causes unnecessary stress in the root zone, which really helps. So something like taking a stick or a pencil and then the root cell holes, if you look at the cell, just putting, give, loosening them a bit and then gently taking them out before planting them is very important. You don't want to give the roots any unnecessary stress or damage. And obviously making sure that your grounds are properly prepared and ready, your irrigation lines are out, your staff know when to water, how much to water, so that once those seedlings are in, they get a good feed of compost, a good dose of feed, and good watering. So transplanting itself can be quite stressful for seedlings sometimes, so you want to minimize any stress around that. And obviously not in midday heat, you're going to do it early morning, late afternoon, is also quite important. And our Farmer Top of the Week from Annelies Tienkamp, founder of Breaking Ground Organics, brings us to the end of another exciting episode. Remember, if you loved this podcast, please rate it and share it with your friends, family members and fellow farmers. And be sure to also check out our sister publication called foodforafrica.com for inspiration and news from across the continent. From me, Don Numdu, Nicole Ludolf, our producer, Megan van der Fendt, and the rest of the Food from Zanzi team, have an awesome weekend. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring, and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food Form Zanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.